Uh, hey, welcome to the Church of 1122. It's a movement for all people, all people, all kind of people. And listen, I don't care where you came from. It really doesn't matter. All that matters is how you got here and from now on. And so people come from all over the place, and then Jesus saves them. And then they become a part of this big dysfunctional family, and then, and then we begin to walk with him. Hey, if you've got your Bibles, and I hope you do, um, we're in Ephesians. We're, we're in this series called Love Incorruptible. Those are the last two words of the book of Ephesians. And we're in week six, and today we're talking about marriage. But really, we're talking about the gospel and its implications in your life. And this week just happens to be the gospel's implications in your marriage. And I know there are people from all kind of walks of life, okay? And there's married people and used to be married people and divorced people and never want to get married again. And maybe one day you'll get married and all of that, okay? I know you're all here. But really what we're going to talk about is just the gospel again and its implications in your marriage. I'm going to try to do a miracle and I'm going to try to keep my sermon under 30 minutes. (laughs) I know, I know laugh, but whatever. Uh, And then the reason is because... After I get done walking through Ephesians 5, uh, Gretchen's going to come up here and she's going to answer some questions, she and I together, from you. So you sent questions in on Facebook, um, and so we, we are answering those questions. Uh, if we don't get to your question, I'm going to try to handle the answers to some of your questions in what I cover now. And just know this, if you sent in a question, then somebody from our staff is going to personally answer your question because I know that question was a big deal for you. The questions we decided to answer are the ones that we felt like we had some experience in. So we didn't answer any ones about how to raise stepkids and stuff, or or remarriage, or blended families and stuff, because that's not our story. Or there was a lot of questions like, what do I do if my husband doesn't come to church? That's not really, it'd be really problematic if that was our story. Okay, so we're just kind of answering the ones uh, that that we know something about. All right, so the book of Ephesians, again, I told you, is that it's about identity, not activity. The first half is the gospel. The gospel is not, God is good, you're bad, try harder. The gospel is that we have been saved by grace through faith. Not of our own works, not of our own doing, so that we don't have anything to brag about. That God didn't make you, he's not trying to take bad people and make them better. He's taking dead people and bringing them to life. That's what the gospel is. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, you get this transitional verse. So the first three chapters are gospel, gospel, gospel. And then from 4 on, it's now here are the implications of the gospel. And you get this verse, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. In other words, when you surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ, you don't earn His approval, but because you have been approved and, and accepted based on what Christ did, it impacts the way you live. Your life will look different if Jesus lives in your life. And so, uh, the first week of that, we talked about the implications as a church, and we went through covenant membership. And then last week, we talked about um, really just holy living, that when you surrender your life to Jesus, you are made holy. You have positional holiness And now over time, by the Holy Spirit's sanctifying work in your life, that holiness begins to manifest itself in your walk or in the way you live. And now we're going to talk about what does the gospel look like in your marriage. Now, if you're looking at your Bible, and I know you are because I just asked you to turn there. um, Our Bibles these days have little headings in front of the paragraphs, right? Well, you got to know this, that the Holy Spirit did not inspire the little headings. All right, so this is just editors came along and said, hey, this next few verses is about wives and husbands, and that's what we're going to talk about. But I think they put the header in the wrong place because verse 21 says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so that verse, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, is this umbrella verse. If Christ lives in you, then we should be submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then it's going to talk about three different, three different arenas of your life where that plays out. Next week, we're going to talk about how we submit to one another 
with parents and children. So if you have parents or you are parents, then tomorrow, next week's for you. And like, like employer-employee. But the other category is in your marriage. So, so it really starts in 21, not in 22. Okay, so in 521, that's where we start. It says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So I would just say this. If you don't know Jesus, I don't know how to tell you to be married. I'm not saying you can't be married if you don't know him. There's lots of non-Christian people that have, have great marriages. But <clears throat> the kind of marriage that we're going to talk about here are two people that have surrendered their life to Jesus and submitted to Jesus first. And in submission to him and abiding in him, you become more like him. And the more you become like him because you're staying close to him, the more you are able to love and serve your spouse. Because you're more forgiving, you're more patient, you're more loving. You, you are those things, not because you've been trying harder, but because Christ lives in you. And so, mutual submission. Submission just means to make your deal more important than my deal. That's what submission means. Submission means I'm going to try to make myself lower than you so I can lift you up. That's what submission means. And so, a good marriage is about mutual submission. I'm going to tell you. And, and it's not because your spouse is submittable to it. I mean, just look at him, right? I mean, you're like, Ugh. okay, I get it, I get it. But it's because it's out of reverence for Christ. This will blow your mind. It's because Christ submitted to you. He did. He made your deal a bigger deal than his deal. He was in heaven. He was doing just fine without you. He comes off his throne in heaven, is born as a baby in a manger, lives for 33 years walking around this, this earth, all right? teaching us what God is like, and then he goes to the cross, and he deals with your sin problem and my sin problem, and it wasn't even his fault. Because he could have shown up, and he could have said, hey, listen, uh, I didn't sin, so peace out. I'm going back to heaven. I'll see you later. Actually, I won't ever see you again. You're going to hell. Bye. Go to hell. I'll see you. Bye. Right? He could have done that, but instead, he submits himself on the cross for our sin. That's what he does. And so, husbands and wives... You submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's about mutual submission. Um, uh, one way to think about this is just, is just this. Mutual submission is just really good friendship. That's what it is. And your marriage, if you've got a marriage problem, it's because you've got a gospel problem. You cannot, both of you, husband and wife, if you get it right at the cross, you'll get it right at your house. But you can't be totally surrendered to Jesus and abiding in him and they be, be selfish and mistreating your wife. Those two are just incompatible. So, the good news for your marriage. I mean, if it's struggling, I'm telling you, pursue Jesus, get right with Jesus, and that is the core of your marriage. Now, we're going to go to wives. Wives, your favorite verse in the whole Bible. I know many of you have crocheted this or you have a sweatshirt with it bedazzled upon it. I understand, okay? Wives, it's going to talk to you. Now, every time in the Bible, the Bible addresses husband and wives, it always starts with the wife. You know why? Because... Um, it, no leader, I don't care how great of a leader he, or he is, no man can lead a wife that doesn't want to be led. The Bible says that there are two kind of wives. I think it's uh, Proverbs twelve four. It says an excellent wife is a crown to her husband, but a nagging wife is like rot, rottenness to his bones. So listen up, wives. It starts with you, that you set the tone in your home. Maybe you've heard the phrase, uh, if mom ain't happy, nobody's happy. That's from the Bible. Not exactly word for word. <laughs> That's, you know, happy, happy, happy is really about you, wife, okay? So, you set the tone in your home. Um, and so, you'll either be a crown or a cancer. That's it. You'll either be the crown of your husband or you'll be rotting bones to your family. And so, the Bible says that that, that kind of wife, it uses this word nag 
To nag means to constantly find fault in an annoying way. That's what it means. And it says a nagging wife is like a dripping faucet. Doesn't sound bad at first until you realize that's like Chinese water torture and it breaks down hardened soldiers, okay? Drip, 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 drip. You're like, that's not that bad. Come back a year later and you're like, I'll tell you anything, okay? It's bad, right? It says to live with a nagging wife, it'd be better to uh, live on the corner of your roof or to uh, live in the desert, actually die in the desert. So God would say to you, if you get the option to move out to the desert, die of dehydration, and have the vultures eat out your eyeballs, or be married to a nagging woman, I'd go with the vulture eyeball eaters because it's less painful. That's what the Bible says, all right? So wives, how's the tone in your house? It's up to you. It's up to you. You set the temperature. It starts with you. And here's your favorite verse. Okay, ready? Wives, just take a deep breath and just let this pour over you. Wives, submit to your own husband's as to the Lord. See, I know you love that verse. Now, here's a couple things. One, it just said to be mutually submitted, okay? Two, wives submit to your own husbands. This does not mean women submit to men. No, 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 no. Absolutely equal, different roles at home, different roles at church a little bit, but this is not women submit to men. So, um, you know, run a company, be CEO, whatever. Praise God. When you get home, submit to your husband, okay? Wives, submit to your own husband as unto the Lord. Why? Here it is, verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife. Got it? For the husband is the head of the wife. Not, here's what I get often. I get, um, very, you know, strong Christian women send me an email, usually fresh out of a Bethmore Bible study, and they say, I need my husband to act like the spiritual leader. And I just going to tell somebody, I need you to read your Bible. Because here's what it says. It doesn't say, husbands, act like a spiritual leader of your home. That's not what it says. It says, wives, submit your husbands as unto the Lord for the husband is. It's just positional authority. So your husband is the head, period. He might be a good one, might be a bad one, right? But he is the head. He is the leader. That's, what, that's how God has positioned him. And you are to submit to him. And again, submission, here's the best way I know to describe submission to you is this, is that submission is an invitation to lead. That's what it is. Submission is an invitation to lead. Submission is, you got the reins of your house, I know, because you're more competent and you're smarter. I understand. It's obvious to us all that you are. But it is that you would lay down the reins of, of your family and convince your husband that you think he has what it takes to pick up the reins and to run with it. You know why? Because your husband's going to lead something. Your husband was created by God to be a leader, to lead something. And here's what he's going to lead. He's going to lead where he feels most competent to lead. That's where he's going to lead. And so some of, sometimes you wonder why he leads so strong at work, but he won't lead at home. Well, let me tell you why. Do you know at his job, they make him feel competent to lead? Like he walks in, especially if he's been leading well and working hard, he walks in and, and people say, hi, sir, and bring him coffee. And he has like a name badge with his name on it and his associate director or whatever it is, you know. And he does an annual review and they're like, Ted, you've really done a good job here. Here's a raise. They give him money to, to, to confirm in him that he is competent to lead. And he says to his employees, do stuff. And they actually do what he says to do. And then he comes home and he's already been told that you're too late and you're not doing enough and you don't do enough around here. And he says, family, do stuff. And everybody's like, yeah, right. And then go back to the video. Okay, you understand? So men, our leadership, it's kind of like a water balloon. You squeeze it on this end and all of the leadership energy is going to go to fill the vacuum where we feel competent to lead. Ladies, Wives, submit to your husband is an invitation to lead. 
It means that you, that you would invite him to lead in your home. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Verse 24. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husband. Now, it says it again. It says it again. It says, wives submit to your husband. One verse later, it says it again. You know why? It knows you weren't paying attention on the first one. You heard it the first time. You're like, whatever. And you started getting your like, defense in mind. And then the Bible comes right back at it again. Wives, submit to your husband in everything. Okay? So, here's what you do. Is you think, all right, am I supposed to submit to my husband in this arena of life? Well, if it's in the everything category, then the answer is yes. Just like our church submits to Jesus. We don't take a vote on whether Jesus is the chief shepherd of our church. He is, no matter what. In the same way, your husband is the head of your house. Now, again, I know there's some feminists in the room and your head's about to explode, and I understand. It probably should. Because what you're thinking of is this misrepresentation and caricature of what submission is not and was turned into. Okay? And again, husbands, if you're quoting wife verses, game's over. Okay? Strike three, you're out. Shut your face. Got it? <laughs> Wives, <clears throat> let me explain it this way. Um, your man, the man that you're married to, every single man in here, whether you're eight or 80, every, everybody in between, no matter how big and successful you are or whatever it is, no dude in here ever emotionally graduated from about the eighth grade. And we're all just insecure little boys. And we have this fundamental question deep in our soul. Do I have what it takes? Every single one of us. And we know the fundamental answer is, nope, good try. And when we were a little kid, we were trying to prove ourselves to our dad. That's why we played baseball or whatever we did. And now you came along. And when you, you know, with your pretty hair and your nice smells, when you entered our life, we bowed up. And now we're trying to impress you and prove to you that we have what it takes. Now, the Bible tells us when we surrender our lives to Christ that his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. And we still have a hard time to be- believing that. A hard time believing that. And then God places you in our lives to be the loudest voice in the entire earth to echo and to compliment what God says about us. That you have what it takes to do what God has called you to do. And what God has called every husband in this room to do is to be the head of our family. And so, you can either be a crown and help us believe that, or you can be a a rotting of the bones and just tear out the foundation there. You see, here's how wives submit to your husband. This is it. Your job. Again, let me just say this. It's not like your husband makes all the big decisions or or that, that he's in charge or he's the boss. It's not that at all. It's just wives submit to your husbands. This is how you know you're doing it, wives. Your job is to make him feel like the man. That's it. To be a resounding yes in his heart that you you make him think that you think that he has what it takes to do what God has called him to do. And that means in the bedroom, that means in the way you talk to him, the way you talk about him, out in public, uh, all of those arenas, wives submit to your husbands just means this. Baby, I believe you have what it takes to do what God has called you to do. And what God has called you to do is to be the head of our family. So that's what that means. All right, then we got to go to husbands. All right, got to go fast. Now, husbands, if you didn't know what this means, like if you didn't look at the text, you would think after it just said, uh, wives submit to your husbands, you would think it might say, husbands, you're the boss or you're the dictator or you get to make all the big decisions. It never says that. Here's what it says. Husbands, love your wives. Now, think think about how radical this was in the first century. 
In the first century, where women weren't citizens, couldn't own property, couldn't vote, etc., they were second class. In the first century, wives submit to your husband, everybody's like, yeah, no problem. They get to this part, and the husband's like, do what? Do what? No, no, no. I thought she just made babies for me, and, you know, I could have as many as I want, and divorce someone I wanted. And, and the Bible is saying, Christianity is saying, no, it's a new day, it's a new ethic. In Christ, there's neither male nor female, okay? So, we're totally equal here. So, husbands, this is what you do. You love your wife. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Well, that seems like a high standard, doesn't it? Yes. How did Jesus love us? He pursues us. Doesn't he? He forgives us. He initiates. Does Jesus wait until you get your act together before he came and died for you? No. God demonstrated his love for us in this. That while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you know what that means, husband? Regardless of how your wife behaves or reacts, your job is to love her and to pursue her and to value her and to chase after her and to dress yourself as a servant and serve her regardless of her reaction. Because I know what some of you say, well, Pastor Joby, I've seen your wife and she looks very easy to love, right? She's real pretty. She sings a lot of Jesus songs. That must be easy. But you don't know my wife. You know, my wife shoots laser beams out of her eyeballs and kills puppies, right? That's what she does. She's evil. Awesome. Right? You chose poorly. I don't know what to tell you. All right? But here's the thing. You're a husband. You're a husband. All right? Then, then you're supposed to love her and give yourself up for her. How far? How, do I, how far do I take it? What if she takes advantage of me? Well, then guess what? You take it all the way to the point of death. That's what Jesus did. And then, here's, I got some good news. If it kills you, if it kills you, your vow was till death do us part, and then you're out, and then you're in heaven. Okay? So... <laughs> So, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Now, here's what this means. Um, Are you the spiritual leader of your house? Well, yes, husbands, but that's like a subcategory of headship. You're responsible for everything. That includes the, the, the spiritual nourishment in your home. Now, here's what it means to wash her with the words. A couple of things. It means that, yeah, you, you should probably, like, lead in the arena of Bible study and stuff. And, and let, me, let me just make it easy for you. All right, if you're going to be an 1122-er, you really don't have an excuse. You know why? Guess what we do every single week? I just open up the book. I read a verse. Here's what it means. Read a verse. Here's what it means. Read a verse. Reminds me of a story. Tell a story for 30 minutes. And we go home. That's what we do. If you would just jot down one little note. I mean, honest to goodness. One little thing that captured your attention. And then on Wednesday, bring it up. They'd be like, hey, how about at church when we were talking about sanctification? Your wife will go, ah, he's a theologian. I'm telling you. <laughs> That's it. <clears throat> Second way you can wash her in the word and lead spiritually is this. Even if she knows way more Bible verses than you, because she probably does, because she's smarter than you, is, is you can pray for your wife. And I know some of you are like, oh, but pastor, I'm not good at praying for people. Okay, here's what you do. I've told you this before. You say, hey, baby, how can I pray for you? And she's going to say some stuff. And you go, okay. And then you hold her hand and you say, let's pray. Dear God. And then you repeat that stuff. Whatever she just said, you just say, dear God. And then you just say the same stuff that she just said. And then you say, in Jesus' name, amen. And when you say amen, she's going to be crying. And then you're going to say, what's wrong? And nothing's wrong. Nothing's wrong. It's right. It's really, really right because you're leading, brother. You're leading, okay? So wash her in the word that way. I'm telling you, she wants you to. So, it says that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing 
of water with the word, verse 27, so that he, this is talking about Jesus, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. All right, that most of us are like, I don't know what that means. It's kind of complicated. Paul understood that was coming, so he said, let me give you an easier illustration in verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one has ever hated his own flesh. Now, remember, wives, this is talking to husbands. This isn't talking to wives, because no wife even likes any of her flesh, all right? But have you noticed how husbands love their body? Like, regardless of what it looks like, right? It could change drastically over the years, but a ball-headed, fat, spotchy, hairy kind of guy gets out of a shower, catches a reflection of himself, and is like, still got it, and loves it, loves it kind of weird but it just that's how it is so husbands the day you got married guess what you were an expert at taking care of you an expert at taking care of you you knew exactly how to take care of you you knew what you liked and what you didn't like you knew what you wanted and what you didn't want you knew what you needed and what you didn't need nobody had to tell you you're driving down the road in your truck and you want something to drink you know what you want to drink and you know what you do about it whatever it takes to get you what you want Pull the truck over, you go get you something to drink, and you get it right every single time. Peter says that husbands should live with their wives as unto knowledge. In other words, you become a student of her. You begin to learn, learn to you begin to learn your wife to the point where you know her and can take care of her wants and needs like you know how to take care of your own wants and needs. And that means that nobody has to tell you you just know her that well. And I know what you're saying. Oh, yeah, but Pastor, it's complicated. I know. You get to wake up every day with kind of a brand new version of her. You know, it's kind of like the, like the big wheel on, on Price is Right. All right, come on. What are we going to get? What are we going to get? You know? Oh, it's happy wife. Yay. And there are no clues. That's just part of it. You don't get to ask because if they tell you, then game over. This is not an open book test. All right? You have to memorize. And then I know what you're saying. But yeah, it's complicated. But so is fantasy football. And you can figure it out. Right? Every year you figure it out. Here's what you learn. Men, here's what you learn. You learn what's important to you. That's what you learn. And when you don't learn your wife, you're communicating, you're not that important. Because we learn any, I mean, we, we can figure out when the waves are coming, when deer go into rut, all right? The Dow Jones, we can understand all that stuff. You've got to learn her because it communicates that she is that important to you. So that's what this means when it says that, that you've got to love her like you love your own body. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Just as Christ does the church. That word nourish means to provide. Husbands, you need to provide for your wife. You need to provide for her. Provide a home. Provide a living. Provide her wants and needs. You need to provide for her. Nourish her. Take care of her that way. That means you work your tail off. You work your tail off to be the biggest fan of your wife. And to create this kind of environment where she can become the best version of her that God has created her to be. And cherishes it. That word cherish means to protect. That's what it means. And so, some of you little wimpy guys need to get a stick or a concealed weapons permit or gym membership or learn karate or do something. But she needs to feel safe with you. Not just physically, that's a little part of it, but also emotionally, spiritually, relationally. That when Adam was created, he only had really three commandments. Subdue and cultivate, all right? And then the best one, be fruitful and multiply. Amen, all right? That's the best one. But that's what you were supposed to do. That you are supposed to create the kind of environment that your wife becomes the best version of herself. And so, here's the deal. 
every girl in here, every single girl in here was created with this fundamental question deep in their soul that never goes away. Am I lovely or am I valuable? It's why my four-year-old puts on a dress, runs in front of me, twirls, and just looks for me to affirm her. Guys, your wife is doing the same thing. She's just asking this fundamental question at the soul level. Am I lovely or am I valuable? And so the Bible teaches us that she's so valuable that God paid for her with the blood of his son, Jesus. 1 Corinthians 6, you're not your own. You were bought at a price. That's how valuable you are. And husbands, God has put you in her life to be the loudest resounding trumpet, to echo the truth of God that she is valuable, therefore she should be treated as valuable. And so you get to communicate that to her. And here's what it means for you to love her like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that she should feel like the most valuable thing in your world. That's what it means, that she should feel like the most valuable thing in your world, like she's more valuable than your job, than your money, than your dumb friends and your stupid hobbies. She's more valuable than all those things. Yes, you've got dumb friends as part of being a man. Yes, you've got stupid hobbies, also part of being a man. But that she never feels like she has to compete with a little white ball or whatever, you know, fishing or whatever it is that you're into. That she feels like she is the most valuable thing in your world. Verse 30, because we are members of his body, verse 31, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. That's a whole different sermon. Some of you got married, but you never left your mom and dad. You got to do that. And the two shall become one flesh. Hear the nervous laughter? All right, no elbows. Verse 32, This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church, verse 33. And however, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. There, it says it again. It's about love and respect, love and respect, okay? That means husbands, you're supposed to love your wife the way your wife feels loved, if if she feels like she's the most valuable thing in your world. Notice, wives, that it says, in other places it says wives should love their husbands, but here it says wives should respect her husband. You know why? Because a husband, more than wanting to be loved, he wants to be respected. Okay? I promise. Because everybody loves us. Somebody told me, I can't remember who, but I love this. He says, hey, you want to see who loves you the most? Put your dog and your wife in the trunk of the car, ride around town for an hour, open the trunk, see who loves you. You see what I'm saying? So, (laughs) grandma loves you, the dog loves you. That's not really what we're looking for. We, because we had that fundamental question, do I have what it takes? We want to feel respected by our wives. That's it. And so, when you're in Christ, when you're in Christ, This is what you do. This is the point. The condition of your marriage is not about activity, but about your identity in Christ. Therefore, in Christ. Wives, your job is to make your husband feel like the man. Okay? Let me just tell you. He's going to try to step up his game this week. He just is. It's good. Because he's here and he's trying to apply it and that's great. And so you can help him here. Don't screw this up. Because he's going to try to do something for you. He's going to give you a compliment, tell you how great you look today. Or he's, you're going to be carrying something. He's like, baby, let me get that for you, all right? And, and don't, don't be like, the only reason you're doing it is because Pastor Joby. No, 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 no. Uh, drip, 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 drip. Don't. Stop, okay? <laughs> just men are like puppies. They repeat what's rewarded. So if he ever gets it right, just Hercules, yay! <laughs> he did it. We went on a date, whatever it is, okay? Got it? And I promise he will begin to repeat. And then husbands, if you're in Christ, your job is to make your wife feel like the most valuable thing in your world. Guess what? You are not the decider of what she feels like. She is. So you just ask her. If you feel like you're competing with my job, hobbies, whatever it is. 
And if she says, yeah, I kind of feel second place, then you don't get to tell her why she's not supposed to feel that way. Then you adjust because you love her. All right, 30 minutes, shortest summer ever for me. Now I want to bring up my wife, Gretchen, and we're going to answer some of your questions via Facebook. Would you please welcome my wife, Gretchen Martin. <clears throat> so like, like I said earlier, these questions came from you via Facebook. And um, we sort of put them into some categories because we saw kind of some recurring themes over and over and over. And um, so we're going to do our best to answer them. And again, there were several that we decided not to tackle just because it wasn't really from our experience. And so um, we'll just dive right in. First question. This question is for Gretchen. How did you get so lucky to have married such an attractive, educated, patient, (laughs) humble stud of a man? It's a hard one. All right, so I just, I'll put that one in. That's not a real one. All right, here we go. Uh, we'll talk about that when we get on. All right, the real, the real first question. Fire and spice. How do you make time for each other when there is no time left in the day? And how do you avoid being great roommates, ensuring the fire for one another doesn't burn out? And then the second one is uh, kind of in the same vein, which is, this is my favorite one. How do I remain holy while trying to be sexy? It's something that I've prayed through a lot. Uh, I'm a 24-year-old newlywed and want more spice while still remaining holy. Gretchen, why don't you take these? Um, So the first question about being great roommates, Joby and I were really great roommates for probably the first five years of our marriage. It It was hard for us because we just didn't communicate well, and there were a lot of outside factors in our life that really took priority over over our marriage, and um, when we started to realize that, it had gotten pretty bad, and it had gotten into a bad place when we were in, <clears throat> in Athens, and uh, there were some pretty hurtful things said from me, mostly, because I used to be really bad with my words, um, but, and then what we did was just learn to communicate better with each other and learn what um, love languages were. Our love languages were, and mine's acts of service. So if he folds low laundry, score. Speaking of score, mine's physical touch. Yes. And words of affirmation. So I like to be told how awesome I am. But I think his is more. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, both of those. He's a humble man, too. Um, (laughs) But... Uh, so what we did was we read that book, um, Five Love Languages, and learned what each other's love language was, and it really helped us because what I was doing was doing um, doing things around the house, thinking that that would was because it's my love language. You tend to do your own love language till you learn to do what theirs is, and you know he's doing a lot of physical touch, and that's not really my <laughs> my love language, and we couldn't figure out why it wasn't clicking. Um, so that was one thing that we really really got right. And um, it really helped a lot. Communication is key. It's all about communication. And we um, started calendaring differently. And um, we put our date nights and just any time we spent with each other on the calendar first. It used to offend me that I had to get on his calendar. And, um, but now, I mean, I obviously... I. My calendar is the same way now, so um, it doesn't offend me anymore. It makes me feel special that I'm on his calendar first above everything else, and that makes a huge difference, too. Um, 
as far as the holy, sexy question. Um, way to go for the 24-year-old girl that asked this question because, you know, 15 years down the road, I'm not sure you would be submitting this question after three kids and, you know, dirty diapers and sleepless nights. But um, keep it going. Keep it going. The main thing you can do is to really communicate with each other about what that means to the other person. You want to make sure that you um, are honoring your spouse in intimacy. And three ways to do that. The first one is to make sure that you're putting your spouse's needs over your own um, always. And then you can never get it wrong, really. The second thing you do to honor your spouse in intimacy is to only desire to be sexy in front of your spouse. And that if that desire goes outside of the home, your desire to be sexy gets gets a little bit off and you are, are more interested in what other people think about how you look and it's not just about your spouse, then then you're not honoring your spouse in that way. And the third thing that I think is really important and it's hard to talk about, but it's, um, it's so relevant today is you never involve a third party when it comes to intimacy. And pornography is such a huge, huge issue today. And um, there's nothing more devaluing to a woman than a man who looks at another woman the way that she wishes you would look at her um, or something even beyond just looking too if there's affairs going on or whatever but that's the most devaluing thing you could do and you can honor your spouse by always always only making it about her or about him yeah and on the first question how do you make time you can't make time that that You can carve out time, but you can't make any more time. We all have the same amount of time, and we all have enough time to do everything God has called us to accomplish. So for us, I mean, I work a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, but I I just schedule my priorities. I don't prioritize my schedule. And so like Gretchen said, she gets first, and she also, in my world, uh, she gets veto power on my calendar. So there's several times that that you've asked, okay, can we hang out on this night? And if she says no, because that's my night, then... And she gets the priority. So, so that's what we do. And we do date nights and those kind of things. And those just go first. And then on this one, I love this, okay? I, I just, awesome. Um, a couple of things. Holy means set apart. So what you do in the bedroom, as long as it's between the two of you, and it's set apart, then praise God, all right? But remember, it's about love and respect. So wife, that 24-year-old wife that sent this in, it's... Um, does he feel respected or does he feel like the man? Because if you come tearing out of the bathroom in like a Catwoman outfit and whips and chains and he's like afraid on the bed, he doesn't feel like the man, okay? He feels abused. So you got time to work that out. You should talk openly about what's good, what's not awesome. And, and here's the thing. If you, if you start just thinking about technique and that kind of thing, you're going to miss the point, and the point is intimacy. The point is intimacy. Because here's the thing. You're 24. Congratulations. Time and gravity are not your friend. So, as you walk down this road for a few decades, it should be just as spicy, just as holy, and just as sexy when you're whatever age as it is when you're 24. And that's rooted in intimacy. Adam and Eve were naked in front of each other and unashamed. That It didn't just mean physical uh, nakedness. It meant they were transparent before one another. And they had, they had that kind of God-given intimacy. So, so I would focus on 
on intimacy more than anything else. All right, question two. It's about priorities. Putting your kids before your spouse. How do you make sure this does not happen? That's tough. If you've got kids, you understand that. Uh, and then the second question is very similar. I know how important dating your spouse is, but so often our children take priority. My husband and I have been on five dates since having children. How do you balance devotion, marriage, and family time? Um, so a couple of things here. So one of the things, you've probably heard it said in church before, you're supposed to love your spouse more than you love your kids. I, let me just reframe that a little bit. It's just different. The kind of love, every parent knows this, the kind of love that you have for your spouse is just different than the kind of love that you have for your children. And they're not, they don't, they're not competing because love is an inexhaustible resource. So 1 John 4, 8 lets us know that God is love. So, love is an inexhaustible resource. So, I can love my wife completely and, like a husband should, and I can love my children completely like a dad should because love is an inexhaustible resource. So, I wouldn't get into, like, who do you love more? That's kind of a dumb question. But in your exhaustible resources, like time, money, and attention, you do have to prioritize them. So, in my world, what that means is when I come through the door... Gretchen gets first kiss, she gets first words. Now, and then I go to my kids and, and spend time with them and love them. Also, the season of your life dictates this. Man, if you've got a six-week-old at home, you can't just neglect them and go on date night, all right? Won't go well for you or the kid. So there's just, they need a certain amount of time, attention, effort. And when I was doing uh, youth ministry for 15 years, let me tell you this. One of the, like, you do not want your kids to think that the world revolves around them. That's the, that's the biggest disservice you could ever do for your kids. So one of the things I think is very healthy for JP and Reagan is when we're about to go out on a date almost every week, that point where we're, you know, the babysitter shows up, and then we're about to walk out of the door, and the kids go, where are you going? I go, to your favorite restaurant. Do we get to go? No. <laughs> but why? You have to stay here because we are prioritizing time together, right? And what your kids need more than anything else is security, and nothing makes a kid feel more secure than seeing mama and daddy love each other. That's how to answer that. Yeah. And really, it's the best thing you can do for your children is to show them the relationship that you have and the closest that you have. Because they're going to grow up one day, and they're going to get married one day, and they're going to learn how to be married from you. And so you want your son to treat his wife that way, then you need to emulate it at home. And... Um, so Reagan and JP, they just expect it. We go out all the time, and it's not a big deal. Babysitters all the time. It's not a big deal because they know that we love each other and we're not afraid to show that affection and to show that we make time for each other. And I have friends that are amazing at this, and they've got date nights set every week, and it's just the norm. And then when I hear of couples that are, you know, they say we've had five date nights and the past 10 years, and it just breaks my heart because your kids are going to benefit from seeing your relationship blossom and improve as the years go on. We've been married 14 years, and our marriage is way better now than it ever has been, um, and it's just a learning process and trial and error, and um, it just is. It's way better. Yeah, and balance is a myth. Balance is a myth. Jesus said no one can serve two masters. That'd be really well balanced, right, to serve two masters equally. It'll, it'll ruin your whole life. Don't be balanced. It's a myth. Think rhythms. 
We were created in rhythm. God created the, the world in six days, and it was, it's rhythmic, you know. And so think uh, daily rhythms, weekly rhythms, monthly rhythms, yearly rhythms. Mm-hmm. There should be family vacations, and then there should be mom and dad vacations without the kids, okay? Those kinds of things. In the, during the week, there should be time with your kids, but then that time stops, and there should be times just with you guys together. And so if you're thinking those kind of rhythms... Um, so I work very, very hard, but then I spend quality time with my family and, and rest. And so yeah. good rhythms. And it's important, too, because it's important for your child to see a healthy marriage so that one day that they know how to be married in a healthy way. But it's also important for your marriage because one day you're going to have an empty nest. And the problem is, is for 18 years you devoted your time and your energy to your kids and you totally ignored your spouse. And then when that house is empty, you look at each other. And you don't know how to be married anymore. And so it's like starting all over. And, and that's, that's tough. So that's one way to avoid, avoid that. Next, submission. In regard to big decision making, what is your advice to couples when there are two opposing viewpoints, especially involving personal morals? And then a very similar question. How do you submit to your husband in the 21st century and what does that look like? Gretchen, why don't you take that? Um, so I don't, I don't view the word submit as a negative thing. I view it as a very positive thing for me because, you know, I, I I feel like I have enough on my plate. I don't, I don't need to lead the house too. So it's comforting and it's a weight lifted off my shoulders to know that I have a husband who leads and leads well and that, um, he takes that role very seriously, um, the decision, big decisions and advice to couple with two opposing viewpoints, um, that's a hard one because I don't know if the viewpoints, one's, if one is a Christian and maybe the husband is not a Christian, that's a hard one to for us to answer because we've never been in that situation. But for the wife, you, you don't change anything. You don't do anything differently. You submit to his leadership because whether he's a Christian or not, he's still the head of the house. And you pray for him like crazy as you're submitting to his leadership. And then you allow God to work through you and the example that you are and um, just let him do his thing while you're doing what God has intended you to do as a, as a wife. Um, I, don't, I don't have a problem with allowing Joby to lead. Well, thank you. I know. Um, so one of the things I'd say to the husbands, if you're going to lead, bro, you better be trustworthy. I mean, really. I mean, submit's a command in the Bible, but, but you better be trustworthy. I mean, you better be providing and protecting. And the, the point is this, is that you would leverage your headship and your authority and your strength and your money and your power and everything to lead like Jesus led. And in John chapter 13, the Bible says that Jesus, knowing all things were put under his authority in heaven and on earth, got up from the table, dressed himself as a servant, and he washed his disciples' feet. That's how you're supposed to lead. That you leverage everything you can For the benefit of your bride, just like Jesus leveraged all of his authority for the benefit of his bride, the church, on the cross. And so, as far as like big decisions, man, we're a team, first and foremost. We're a team. I would never make a decision without her being 100% involved. And the only difference is, I'm responsible for the outcome. That's the difference. Because... Because I'm the head. And so um, a couple of years ago, we had a little incident. I've talked to you about this before. Um, Reagan, our, she was two then. She got her toenail smashed into the door at church. And um, it was like two weeks before we were, Gretchen and I were supposed to lead a mission trip to Jamaica. 
And so then the doctor tells us, hey, I think the toenail is going to fall off the week you're in Jamaica. And so Gretchen goes full hardcore mom mode. Like, I can't go. I've got to be here for Reagan. And I kind of thought she should go. I'm not sure, like, is this the devil or is this just her being a good mom? Is it fear-based? I mean, what is this? And so we, we had a bit of a differing viewpoint. And, we're, and we can't, you know, we're trying to find a resolution. And then it just came down to this. There was kind of a drop-dead date. And I said, babe, why don't you, will you trust me to just make the decision that's best for our family? I'll get all the information, and I'll seek the Lord, and will you trust me to make the decision that's best for our family? And she said, sure. So it was, I, it was a Monday. I went into the woods like I do every Monday to pray and fast and write a sermon, and, and that's what I do on Mondays. And while I'm in the woods, this is what she texts me. Now listen to this. She says, I just wanted to tell you that yesterday, all day, I felt very peaceful about whatever decision you were going to make for me about going to Jamaica or staying home. Either way, I might get a little emotional, but I know that God speaks to you, and I have no doubt that whatever you decide is from Him, thank you for taking care of us. Folks, that's an invitation to lead. Now, is she competent and capable of making that decision? Yes. In fact, she's probably better informed, particularly when it comes to toenails falling off, than I am. (laughs) But what she did, she laid down the reins. She said, I trust you. You know what happened when I read that? I felt like the man. And it made me pray harder. It made me seek God more. And then I came home and said, I have made a decision. The Lord has spoken to me. Before I tell you what it is, what do you think we should do? <laughs> and she said, I really think it would be best if I stay home with Reagan. And I said, well, that's exactly right. I have decided that you will stay home with Reagan. And that's what we did. And so I think that's how it works. I think that's how it works. You leverage your headship for your bride. Right? Right. All right. Next question. Communication. How do you learn to communicate without hurting each other's feelings? Because I am really good at that. Uh, And very similar question. How can you communicate when something hurts you without the other person thinking you're being judgmental? Let me take this one. Um, so, a couple of things here. One, it's like, again, like Adam and Eve, that you've got to be fully transparent before one another and unashamed. It's just got to be open and honest in your communication. And so, when people love each other, they shouldn't want to hurt each other and they shouldn't want to be judgmental towards one another. And so, this is not a game and this is not about emotional manipulation. One of the tools that I often teach here is this is that when you've got a problem with your spouse, it goes like this. Hey, babe, when you, fill in the blank, I feel, fill in the blank. So Gretchen could say to me, when you are two hours late coming home from work and you don't call or text or let me know and I've cooked dinner and all of that, I feel like about third place on your priority list. Now, husbands, you know what your response is? Thank you for telling me that. That's it. It's not, well, here's, now you shouldn't feel that way. Because what people that love each other do when they get that kind of information, you, you should adjust because that's not what you're trying to do. And your job is not to tell them how to feel because that's for the first many, many years in our marriage, even now, I have a tendency to do this. She'll say she feels a certain way and I go, that's not how you should feel. I took the exact same information, I filtered it through my grid and several Bible verses and I don't feel that way, therefore you shouldn't. And also, you know how when I preach, you guys like uh, that I'm quick-witted, I know a lot of Bible verses, and I can be really, really pointed in telling you what to do? It works great in here, not so great over here, all right? 
So at the kitchen table, and I go, you should write this down. This is very good. Not awesome. Okay? So you learn your spouse. You just open and honest communication. And then, and then listening is huge. When you listen to understand instead of listening to respond, then you can actually get to, like, the real meat of the, of the communication. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and hurtful words stab like a sword. So um, you keep those just out of it just totally out of the communication and out of the, the context of whatever you're talking about, then it will just automatically go smoother. It took me 14 years to figure this out. Um, and I get, totally gave away my secret, but I, he didn't mind. But honestly, I figured out just one day, I don't know why, that my hurtful words or my nagging or my opinions that Joby says I'm opinionated, um, all of that, if I just took that and kind of put it away, and when he came home from work, I was just sweet. I was just sweet. No matter what, he could be late. Um, he could just have a bad day because, like, he doesn't really care. You know how he always says he doesn't care about your feelings, but he really cares about his feelings, and he's, he's, very, and he's very sensitive. He's a very sensitive man. I know he doesn't look like it, but he's a very sensitive man. Not with so, y'all, just with her. Not... I feel like we need yeah, a counselor. So he doesn't care about your feelings, but he really cares about his own feelings. I do. And so one day, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to try this. And this is emotional manipulation, but it really has worked to my advantage. So, And you don't mind it. So I just, I'm going to be sweet for a week. Just sweet. No matter what, I'm not going to talk back. I'm not going to say hurtful things. I'm not going to argue. And I, I got what I wanted all the time. It was awesome. So seriously, I really did. And he's like, and I told him, and I just gave it away. I said, you know what, Joby? I just, he said, you're different. I know. <laughs> he said, what is it? I was like, well, I don't know. You just will let me have things that I want and do things that I want when I'm sweet to you. So it just works for both of us, you know? But honestly, um, just be sweet, girls, and you'll get what you want. Amen. It really does boil down to love and respect. Don't nag. I mean, when you feel respected, right, you want to value and love. I mean, it's just Paul wrote it 2,000 years ago, and we just figured it out six months ago. Um, (laughs) I did. All right. um, Last set of questions here. For those of us who have been deeply scarred from sexual sin, be it our own sin or the sin of others, would you advise one to wait for full healing before pursuing marriage, or is marriage a final part of healing? And a similar question about scars. You've preached about being an oasis for your partner. My girlfriend has been through some rough situations in her past and is afraid of getting hurt. What are some ways I can show her that she is safe? G, you want to handle that? Um, Well, the first thing you can do to show her that she's safe is treating her with the respect that she deserves and and, um, value her. So if you're having sex with her, you should stop. You're not an oasis for her. Um, If you're not, then amen, way to go. You really need to communicate with her. I don't know what the rough situations are. Um, I'm guessing like sexual situations or maybe abusive situations. Um, Really, it's about communication and what she needs from you. And so you just need to be a really good listener and be very sensitive to that. And just know that it might take time for her to open up about about whatever whatever it is, and um, let her know that you're there for her in a very um, gentle and loving way, and never 
never push, never push. And the question before that, um, for those of us who are, have been deeply scarred from sexual sin, marriage is definitely not the final healing. Um, you have to ask yourself the question, is your identity in your past or is your identity in Christ? And hopefully the answer is that your identity is in Christ. And if your identity is still in your past, then it, it can't be both. Um, your past is going to gonna be with you, and hopefully it will become a testimony that you have, and it won't identify you, identify you anymore. It won't define who you are. That Christ is the only thing that will define who you are. And um, because of that, you will heal, and you will be in a healthy, godly marriage. Yeah, and I would say, um, when I was talking about being an oasis, it was from the Song of Solomon, and Solomon's talking to the Shulamite, and he talks to his wife like a dove in the cleft of the rock, and he speaks tenderly to her and calls her out. And so it doesn't give you a time frame. That means that you're patient and that you're kind and that you're, you're not self-seeking, which are also the same things that 1 Corinthians chapter 13 says that love is. And so, really, she gets to be the one to define what safety looks like for her. And then as far as how, how, um, how fully healed do you have to be before getting married, listen, man, we're all fixer-uppers. We're all sinners. We're all falling short of the glory of God. We're all jacked up, just in different areas. And so, in fact, most of us don't have marriage problems. We've got people problems, and we're just married. And so Jesus is the only one that heals. Now, there needs to be a level of emotional and relational health so that you could be the husband or be the wife that Christ has called you to be. But if your identity is in anything else but the healing, saving power of Jesus and what he did on the cross, then, again, I don't know how to tell you to be a wife or a husband. And when you do get married, um, marriage is like the left lane of sanctification, man. It is the fast lane of sanctification. Nothing exposed my sinfulness in me more than being married. I didn't realize how selfish I was, what an idolater I was until I got married and went, oh, man. And then... By the power of the Holy Spirit and the iron sharpening iron of a godly husband and wife, that, that you become more and more and more like Jesus the closer and closer you stay to him. And the good news is this. Regardless of who you are, where you've been, what you've done, it's really irrelevant because the cross is so much bigger than all those things. Your marital status, your past, your sin does not define you. Only Jesus gets to define you. And here's how I know. Because we have a great marriage. That God can take two broken, jacked up, wretched, black-hearted sinners like us, save us, sanctify us, wash us in his word, put us together, and then have a life that's not perfect. I mean, we fight all just like everybody else, okay? And yet have a God-honoring, Christ-centered kind of marriage, which which leads me to how I want to close. Um, One of the things I just want you to know is how, how grateful we are that you would allow us to sit in these seats, that you'd allow me to be the lead pastor and you'd allow our family to to have the position that we have here. And man, we do it with an immense amount of humility because we know, I know I don't have what it takes, but in Christ, everything's possible. And so um, about a month or two ago, we did this little family photo session, which, you know, I really love that. But we were flipping through some pictures and we got this one and... um, that's the Martins, you know, there's J.P. and Reagan there in the middle. And, and here's what I would say. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. Now, I don't think I can say that. I don't know that I'm a great model to follow. But 
But the point is that you follow after Jesus. And so here's what I would say to you as you're trying to follow after Jesus, if you're interested in that at all. That if, if you're trying to follow after Jesus, and, and not only individually, but also in your marriage and as a family, and you don't know exactly what that looks like, I'll just tell you this. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And so this family, our family, we didn't get here by accident. We've been following after Jesus for a while. And, and we're not stopping now. That We're just going to continue to abide in Him and follow after Him. And so if you'll walk with us, then you'll be following after Jesus because that's the direction that we're walking. And again, we're not perfect. And, and even up here, you see some of our dysfunction. But, but here's what I'll tell you. We are authentically following after the one that has chased after us and redeemed us. And no matter where, where you are or who you are, there's hope for you. As long as there's Jesus, there's hope, even in what feels like to you a hopeless situation. So we would say thank you for letting us sit here. We would say thank you for being such an amazing church. And then we would say, we're going to keep chasing after Jesus. And so, for us, this is what it looks like. We hope some of these answers have been helpful. More than anything, we hope you've just been pointed to the cross of Jesus Christ. And if you'll walk with us, then you'll follow after Jesus. And so, the way I want to close is this. Um, husbands, if you're not holding your wife's hand now, ready to go. And I know some of you fought on the way here, and you're looking at him like, you better not touch me. Just reach out and get it anyway. Okay, I know, I know, I know. You're like, of all the Sundays, really, I know. That's just how it goes. Um, and so, here's how we're going to close. The response time, is so, it can be very, very important. It can be very important. Now, Jesus is just impre- as present in your seat as he is up here by the altars. But as we respond, the band's going to come out. We're going to sing this song called Aftermath, okay? And it just talks about the result of the gospel in your life. What happens? And so maybe husbands, maybe for the very first time, you'll take your wife by the hand and you'll invite her to the altar and you'll say, how can I pray for you? And then you'll pray for her. And for some of you that are here alone, maybe you'll come down to the altar and you'll pray for your spouse. Not about them, that God will change them, but that you will pray for them. That God would do whatever it takes to draw them unto yourself. And for some of you that are, that are single and you want to be married, that you would come down here and you would pray that God would help you become the one that the one you're looking for is looking for. So wherever it is, we're, we're a movement for all people, all kind of people. Married people, used to be married people, going to be married people, never want to be married people, whoever you are. We're a movement for all people. So our prayer is that you would respond. Would you please stand and pray with us? Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, God, we thank you that we can love because you first loved us. God, I thank you for this church where we can be real and talk about real things and, and we, don't have to, um, we don't have to tone it down. But you're a real God. And so, Lord, I pray for the marriages in this room. God, I pray that they would be strengthened and rooted and identified in Christ, not in just marital activity. God, I pray for the people that uh, marriage is the hardest thing to hear and talk about right now. God, I pray that you would point those people to the cross. God, I pray for the people that are so frustrated, that feel so lonely. God, I pray that they would find their sufficiency in you. And God, I pray that every single one of us would be submitted to one another out of reverence for Jesus. We pray it in the beautiful name of Christ. Amen. Hey, let us respond.